I wanted to hear it twice. All right. You guys having a good day so far? It's awesome. That's awesome. I am so freaking tired. I mean, it's just one of those days. I ran off and left my iPad at home. Oh, I know. That sounds bad. It's real bad when you realize all my sermon notes are on my iPad. So we don't have a sermon this morning, guys. I'm sorry. I sent Donnie and Joseph racing to the house to get my iPad. Got that. And I was just getting ready to walk up here, and I thought, oh, I don't have my microphone on. It was in my office. So I said, go. So play another one. So anyway, good to see you, though. You energized me. So... Glad to see you, and uh, I mean, I don't even miss that hour of sleep that we lost last night, do you? I normally, I go to bed super early on Saturday night. I try to be on my A game on Sunday, and uh, super routine uh, every week, the way I do things. And last night, of course, our son David was playing at Muddy Banks, and I had to be there to support him. Wouldn't have missed that for the world. Um, Stayed to the bitter end, and then that's what I get for bar hopping, I guess, on Saturday night, isn't it? (laughs) But and then we lost an hour of sleep, and so I'm feeling good. Go to Romans 5 this morning. It's going to be a real short sermon. You know that ain't right. Romans chapter 5, we're, we're in a series this year through the book of Romans, and the title of the series is Creating a Gospel-Centric Culture. We've spent the majority of our time thus far building a foundation. This is, uh, I think it's... I th- of the gospel, what the gospel is, what the gospel is not, and um, laying out some, some things in very plain black and white. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you that not everything in the Bible is in black and white. Y'all know that? Come on. I know we want it to be, don't we? We want, we want everything to be in a nice, neat little package that's easy to grasp and easy to understand, but the truth is not everything in Scripture is in black and white. However, the gospel is absolutely in black and white. God gave us the, the truth of the gospel in plain English, in, in simple terms that we all can understand, and, uh, and it's not really that complicated. When you break it down, it's, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. Now, I'm quoting a guy named Paul, okay? <laughs> Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and then he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. There's nothing to add to it. Uh, there's nothing that can be taken away from it. Jesus said himself in John 14, verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is a person. Amen? Now, you can get saved in a church, but a church isn't going to take you to heaven. You can be a part of a, of, of a religious group, but no religious group is going to take you to heaven. Uh, you should be baptized. But being baptized does not wash away your sins. The only thing that washes sin away is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary. And so Paul has laid that out very plainly, very clearly thus far in Romans. And then now we're going to begin shifting gears. We actually started to shift gears last week. We got the clutch to the floor and we were between first and second when we shut her down last Sunday. So we're going to throw it all the way in second gear today and, uh, and, and, and try to follow along with the narrative of the book. So look with me in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you get to chapter 5, verse 1, it's almost a, a, you almost feel a sigh of relief as Paul is explaining the, the gospel 
when he concludes in chapter 5, and I told you last Sunday that whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you always ask yourself the question, what's the therefore? Oh, you guys are quick, man. I'm telling you, you don't get anything past these people. Uh, what is the therefore, therefore? Therefore always reflects back on what was previously stated. So as we get to chapter 5, verse 1, and he begins the statement, uh, he begins with the statement, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've established that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and now that we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we presently have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the same Christ that gave us justification gives us peace on a daily basis that we have comfort, that we rest in him. Read on with me verse number two. It says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we've been given access to unlimited riches in Christ Jesus, not earthly riches, but heavenly riches, intangible riches uh, that are attained through the Holy Spirit. And And he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So once again, stating the fact that, the, that we are reconciled to God in the present tense, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So <clears throat> many places in the book of Romans uh, is a bit much. Like there's a lot of content there. There's a lot of, a lot of verbiage. You read a lot of words kind of stacked on top of each other. And chapter 5 is exactly that way. There's a lot of stuff that's contained here. So we're going to cover just as much as we can. My goal is to get at least through verse 11 today. Can we do that? Uh, you don't seem too confident to me, but we're going to try it anyway. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have been given to gather together. Lord, time is a very precious thing, and I count it uh, a privilege that we have, we have time, we have opportunity, uh, we have this present moment to open up your word and, and study and glean from eternal truths. And so, Father, we receive it as the very engrafted word of God. We receive it as the words that were inspired by your spirit. To us, And so, Lord, please speak to us specifically. I pray that you would precisely deal with exactly what we have need of in our hearts individually and collectively. I pray that, Father, we would, we would be used greatly for you, for your glory and for your honor. Please fill us today. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, I ask that you draw them. Father, enlighten their minds, quicken their hearts, that they might see and believe the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a quick review. For those of you who weren't here, I know those of you who were here have no doubt already committed this to memory, so feel no need to pay attention for the next couple minutes if you were here last Sunday. But just a quick review. Last Sunday, we covered, in the main points, we talked about faith, and we said, first of all, faith is not a work. Y'all remember that? That's important. I I said to somebody yesterday, I said, I'm not sure, and this isn't to 
undermine your, your, your listening ability or your capability to understand the gravity of a situation or a statement. But when I make the statement that faith is not a work, that's a heavy statement. That's a controversial statement. Because those who believe that we have to do something to earn our salvation, those who believe we have to do something to inherit or merit a place in heaven, would say things like this. They would say, well, you believe you're saved by faith. Faith is a work. Faith is not a work. Faith is no more a work, and we used this illustration last Sunday, faith is no more a work than breathing air into your lungs is a work. From the moment you took your first breath, breathing has been second nature, right? Now, when you hear something that you know is true, you can nod your head and say amen or yeah, boy, go, homeboy, whatever, okay? You can, you can affirm an agreement, uh, but, but the fact is, from the moment we, we took our first breath, when that, ba- that doctor smacked your little baby butt when you were born, right, and you started breathing, I don't think they do that anymore, but my mama said they whooped me real hard when I was born, but... Uh, From the moment you received air into your lungs, breathing has been second nature, and that's exactly what faith is. When we receive Christ by faith, the Spirit of God begins to do a work in our heart, which leads to point number two. We said, number one, faith is not a work, but faith actuates the work of God uh, through the Holy Spirit in a person's life. So when we have faith, when we trust in Christ by faith, when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we confess with uh, him with our mouth and believe in our heart that he's been resurrected from the dead, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within our hearts, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 1 and several other places, but the Spirit uh, comes to live inside of our hearts and, and by faith it activates the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. This is where we get what's known as the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration simply teaches in the Bible that when we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us a new nature. That doesn't mean everything about our old nature suddenly disappears, right? Remember that part? If you hear something you agree with, go ahead and just let me know that you're following me. Okay, so so when we receive the Holy Spirit into our lives, we're regenerated or regened. We receive a new nature. We receive God's nature in the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, and if I go away, I will send you another comforter. That's where uh, that that statement comes from the Greek words, allos parakletos, meaning uh, one like the other. Jesus said, the spirit, my spirit will come and abide with you. He will dwell in you. I'll not leave you alone. I will walk through this world with you from the moment you become my child. And so through the Holy Spirit, we understand that that faith activates his power in our lives. So when a believing sinner calls on Jesus Christ to be saved, at that moment, the Spirit of God begins a work that he will not finish until we see him one day face to face. This is what Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13, when he said, concerning the gospel, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, after that which you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, we like that part, but there's an even better part to follow. He says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? So what that simply means, that's a big way of saying that's like reading a contract. Y'all ever try reading the fine print of a contract? That's like reading the fine print of a contract. What God is saying there is he's given us his spirit to abide with us and that he will complete the work that he began in us until the day that we're redeemed, that we're delivered out of this old sin-cursed, broken world. And so we understand that faith is not a work, 
Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse number 8, concerning receiving the Spirit by faith, he said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He said, when the Spirit of God breathes into your life, he'll begin to do a work there that will not be ended until you see Jesus faith to faith, face to faith, or faith to faith, face to face, thank you, all right. Man, I'm telling you, you mispronounce words, you can say some bad stuff in church. <laughs> Found that out last Sunday. Faith is not a work, but it actuates the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And then number three, we said faith will inevitably manifest the goodness of God in a person's life. Another way to say that is that faith will, will, will evidently and, and precisely, inevitably manifest good works in a person. Okay? Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. It doesn't mean that they're saved by the good works. Nobody's saved by good works. But faith works, right? You can't, you can't and we elaborate on this more Wednesday night, but you, you can't genuinely believe something and there not be some activation, some evidence that follows that belief. Amen? Now, once again, you remember that whole part. If you hear something you agree with. Maybe you don't agree with anything I'm saying. It's okay. Just yell out stuff at random then. It'll be fun. But, but you can't genuinely believe something without acting on it. If, you don't, if there's not a follow-through, if there's not some action, if there's not some evidence, there's real, really no substance. That's why Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It's not that I believe that, that, that a Christian should live a life void of good works. It's that I believe we shouldn't get the cart before the horse. We have to understand that you're not saved by good works. It's not a works-based salvation, but salvation does genuinely work in a person's heart. And so we all love wonderful passage of scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 often gets overlooked because it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. No doubt as a believer in Christ, we, there ought to be evidence in our lives that God is powerfully at work within us. And so we understand that faith will inevitably manifest the goodness of God in a person's life. But then as we shift into second gear, here's the question. How does, how does all this translate into real time? Because I, you know, sometimes we, we, we talk about these things and we sort of make these, these platitude statements or we get sort of idealistic about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. When, when in reality, living a life of faith isn't always a nice, tidy, little sterile sort of life. That's how we would like it to be. You know, we would like, we would like to have this, this, this life that once we trust in Jesus, and by the way, this sells books and puts you on TV to preach this kind of stuff, not what I'm about to say, but, but this idea that if you trust in Jesus, then, you know, all your bills will always be paid, you'll never get sick, you'll never have to uh, go through a time of grief again. If you'll just believe Jesus, life will be wonderful. But that's not reality. So how does this shake out when we, when we realize that, that while on this journey, sometimes life gets awfully messy? Even a life of faith is not this, this clean little sterile life where we never have problems. In fact, for a believer in Christ, life can often be more difficult. I hate to even tell you that. 
But you earned an adversary when you put your faith in Jesus. When you, when you pitched your, when you, when you drove the stake in the ground and said, I'm going to stand with Jesus, you created an adversary. In fact, a whole bunch of them. And so living for Christ can get real, real messy sometimes. And living a life of faith does not imply that we live a life that's free of fear, that we live a life that's free of doubt. Living a life of faith doesn't mean that you'll never struggle, is what I'm trying to tell you. Living a life of faith doesn't mean that you'll never, never be bogged down and, and entangled again with any kind of addiction. It doesn't mean that you're never going to struggle with temptation. It doesn't mean that you'll never go through a breakup. It doesn't mean that you'll never get sick. It doesn't mean that you'll never be laid on a bill again. It doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean that life is always going to be glossy and, and fluffy and happy and people are going to love you. It doesn't mean that. In fact, in fact, Sometimes, in certain cases, one thing I know for certain in life is that you're, if you're attempting to do anything of any real value, there will be trouble in adversity. Now, if you don't want trouble, just sit down and be quiet. Just sit still, don't do anything, don't ruffle any feathers, don't, don't go against the grain. You just, just go with the flow, just get in the flow of life, just figure out you know, how to sort of sneak by quietly. If, you can try that. But if you try to boldly do anything that's worth anything, you're going to face adversity. And trouble comes in many different shapes and sizes. I hear people say oftentimes they'll, they'll be going through a situation. They'll say, well, you know, my problems aren't as bad as somebody else's. And I'm like, dude, time out. Your problems are your problems, though. And I'm not trying to magnify them, and I'm not trying to make you a victim. But the fact is, we have our own little patented sets of trials and tribulations that we go through. And your pain and your, your problems and your burdens are just as real to you as the next person. And so we understand that we, that we go through difficult situations. But I want you to notice what it says in chapter 5 and verse number 3. He says, and, and not only that, but we glory in tribulations. Can we just pause for a second and, and just ask a big question? What? That's all I can think when I read that. Who, wh- who's we, Paul? Who we, who we talking about here, Paul? Glory in tribulations? What's, what's that even mean? Seriously, what kind of pathological maniac likes to go through difficulties? I'm looking at some crazy people, but I don't know anybody in this room that just says, man, bring on the problems, and I'm praying for pain and grief in my life. Nobody thinks that way. So what are you talking about, Paul? We glory in tribulations. Well, first of all, I want to say that this is not a, this is not a reference to a disturbed person who actually enjoys pain, okay? This is, however, a rare, rare breed of person who, uh, who has, who's been through the crucible of pain. They've been through some things. They've felt the fires of anguish and desperation. They've walked some dark valleys all alone and found that in the pain, they've discovered that in the anguish, they have found in their loneliness and desperation that they know they've never been forsaken by God. And so when Paul says we, I don't know if I'm included in that because I still haven't reached the point that I say, man, I like, I like problems. Matter of fact, I would say, straight up, keep your drama to yourself, right? I don't like drama. I don't like trouble. I don't like problems. I don't like, I don't like any of that stuff. So I'm not sure I've arrived at this point. So Paul is dealing with a very rare breed of individual who, 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 who has weathered some storms 
and discovered no matter what the world might throw their way, no matter what the enemy brings into their lives, they've discovered that God is always faithful, that God has never left them alone, that God has never forsaken them. No matter what pain they had to to encounter, no matter how deep the hurt, God has given them grace. And so then I want you to observe this process with me. First of all, he said, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. So, so in verse 3, when he says not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, he's referring to this, this, this group of people, these individuals, who have discovered that tribulation, trouble, produces perseverance. So it all starts with tribulation, doesn't it? It all begins with tribulation. Tribulation means pressure, it's anguish, it's affliction, it's burdens, they are troubles. All this sort of plethora of problems that we encounter in life can be encompassed in the term tribulation. So Paul said, we glory in tribulation for this very reason. We know that out of trouble comes perseverance. Do you see that? In verse number four, or verse number three rather, he says, we know that tribulation produces perseverance. And so perseverance is, is, is defined as a continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failures, or oppositions. And so when he's talking about perseverance, it's what I would refer to, this is sort of just my own definition of perseverance, but perseverance is, is what we develop uh, known as mental toughness. We develop this internal fortitude through trials and tribulations, and again, this isn't for, uh, necessarily for a new believer. This is something that you have to learn, that you, you gain as a seasoned Christian. But Paul said, now we've gone down this road a little while, and, and we've been walking with Jesus for some time. And those of us who have gone through some problems have discovered that when trouble comes, we can even rejoice in trouble because there is an end result of that. Our troubles will produce within us a greater state of stamina and, and mental toughness where we can endure more, where we won't be crushed the next time when the winds of adversity begin to blow. He said, we are fully aware now that we have gone through some trouble, that trouble produces perseverance. Or if you have a King James Version, it's the word patience, but we don't like that word. I don't like the word patience. People tell me all the time, I don't pray for patience. Well, you really should. I don't pray for patience because I know the Lord's going to try my patience. Well, I've got news. All right, I hate to rock the boat too much, but your patience will be tested whether you pray for it or not. So you might ought to pray that you, that you, that you get some stamina down in your gut and, and that you get some, get some backbone when trouble does come. You have to have the strength to stand against adversity. So Paul said we can, we can, we can glory, we can rejoice in tribulation because we know that tribulation is doing something on the inside. It's creating within us a sense of strength and power and perseverance. And so we understand that this, this truth, y'all ever heard, uh, there is a, there's, a, there's a point within a certain theological system that has dubbed the phrase perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. Y'all ever heard that? Perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints simply means, even, even though that system, by the way, uh, has a whole lot of flaws, the concept is solid in theory. This idea that the saints of God or the people of God will, will persevere, will persist no matter what comes their way, simply put, perseverance of the saints uh, encompasses the landscape of God's enduring grace in our lives in spite of our own mishaps and flaws. That's what that means. 
So, so if, if a person is genuinely saved, if a person is genuinely a child of God, and again, I defined all these terms a couple weeks ago for a reason, if a person is genuinely saved, genuinely a child of God, no matter what life throws their way, they will make it through it. That's what that means. But when we talk about God working in us, the, the, from the moment we trust in Christ, from the moment we, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God begins to work in us. He said that he would not finish that work. Paul said it this way, what I have committed unto him, he will keep until the day I see him again. Until one day he calls me out of this world, what I've committed to him, what I've given to him, it's God who keeps that covenant. And in God keeping covenant with us, that simply means no matter what we have to endure, no matter what we have to face in this world, he won't leave us alone and he will give us the power to get through it. Now, how many of y'all are thankful to know this morning that Jesus loves you? Now, nah, stop. Don't get excited. Jesus, Louise, we're just talking about the God of all the universe who left all the glories of heaven to come to a sin-cursed world and live inside of an earthly body, die a brutal death on a cross, buried and rose again after three days to justify us. We're just talking about the fact that that God loves us, so stay calm. Please, by all means, don't get excited about that. How many of y'all are glad Jesus loves you? How many of y'all remember singing the song in, in kids' church or Sunday school or vacation Bible school growing up? You can sing it with me if you know it. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And I kicked it off in too high a key. But anyway, <laughs> I'm glad to know that Jesus loves me. And that song brings me comfort all these years later, learning that as a child, I still find comfort in the fact that Jesus loves me. Now, let me show you something about the love of Jesus that ought to make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, okay? It's in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6. You ready? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's good, isn't it? Yes, Jesus loves me, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then are, you are illegitimate and not sons. The Bible tells me so. Right? When the Lord loves us, now think about this. Again, I told you I defined these terms a couple weeks ago for a reason. When we say the word saved, when we talk about a person being saved, that word is the simplest of terms that defines and describes what it means when we put our faith in Jesus. Then the Bible goes on to elaborate with words like justification, propitiation, sanctification, imputation. All these big words we're learning in the book of Romans are, are, are really contained. They're encapsulated in the word saved. And so when a person gets saved, the Bible says that when, we're, when we trust in Christ, we become the sons and the daughters of God. That's a great truth, isn't it? We become the sons and the daughters of God. He used that strong terminology because we understand that no matter what a child does, they will never cease to be their father's child, right? You can't remove the DNA from your body. You are, you are a product of your earthly father and mother, and in the same way, spiritually speaking, we are a product of our heavenly father. 
And when he receives us, the Bible says in John chapter number one that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Now, God used that indelible description to help us understand the fact that once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we become sons and daughters. We're in the family, like it or not. You're a child of the living God. And being a child of God means that when we get out of line, this is where it gets fun, that when we get out of line, God will deal with us if a person has been genuinely saved, and that's always the question. But when a person has been genuinely saved, when they've genuinely put their faith in Christ, and they get out of line, God will deal with them. Now, the word chastening doesn't sound very fun. Maybe you're a sicko and it does sound fun. (laughs) But to me, the word chastening doesn't sound fun. When I think of chastening, I think about my dad getting out his old razor strap. My dad was a barber. I can get whooped with a belt. I got whipped with a four-foot razor strap, and I'd squeal like a pig. It's awful. You know what I'm saying? My dad was very patriotic. He put on the stripes, and I saw the stars. just the way it went. And so that's what I think about. When I think about chastening, I think about, I think about getting a whooping. Don't you? And whooping, by the way, in case you can't spell, is spelled W-H-U-P-P-I-N apostrophe. It's proper spelling. If you get, if you got a spanking, you're from Michigan. But anyway, <laughs> gotta be some kind of Yankees, all I can say. But uh, we got whoopings around here. And when I think about chasing, I think about getting a whooping. Whoopings weren't always fun, were they? But here's how we know, and this is this is this is the weird sort of you know paradigm or whatever. It's actually more of a paradox, I guess. I knew it was a p word that I was trying to say. But it's a weird sort of paradox where we're in, when, when God deals with us, when God chastens us, it reminds us that he really does care. He's not a careless parent. He's not, and I'm not saying this just to be cliche. This is the way the Bible describes it, that God is not careless with his children, that God takes meticulous care. He has a watchful eye on all of his children. Now, that doesn't mean any time you get out of line, God's ready to smack you upside the head, Right? Again, all of us who grew up with, with, with dads who had a little bit of a, of a hair-trigger temper, you know, we get nervous when we start talking about this. I think about holding the flashlight when dad's working on the truck, you know. <laughs> Hold it still, idiot. Yes, sir. Anyway, my dad was awesome. I'm painting him out like he was mean. He really wasn't too mean most of the time. Anyway, but, but, but God, God doesn't deal with us that way. He's not waiting on us to get out of line just so he can smack us and, and chasten us and he, 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 he's not a, a hard taskmaster, ma- dictatorial type of God, but he is a God that when we start to shift in the wrong direction, he will begin to slide us back in the right direction. And sometimes in doing that, he has to allow some hardships to come into our lives. And oftentimes those hardships come in the form of self-inflicted problems because God knows if he just lets us go long enough, we're going to get caught at the end of the chain. You know what I'm saying? And we're going to get snapped back, and, and we're going to realize that, you know, I, I started going to church for a reason. Like, I, I started going, and y'all have heard me say this before, but I've never had anybody walk through the doors of a church and go, hey, man, I'm here just because my life is so full and so blessed, I want to be a blessing to other people. My life is so awesome. I just had to come here and share the awesomeness. I was looking for a group of people I could just share the wonderment with. 
the truth is most of us got in church because life beat us down to a point we realized, man, I've got to find something. I got to get some hope. I need some help. I need something beyond myself. And so the Lord oftentimes will allow us to go into certain situations that, that remind us of our need for him, and that's a wonderful thing. Sometimes God will allow things to come into our lives, and, and when it says he chastens us, again, I don't think God's just ready to take us out to the woodshed and beat the fool out of us every time we do wrong. In fact, I have found by experience that God is very gentle, and he's very kind, and he's very tender in the way that he deals with us. When I've stepped away from the Lord, I always thought God was going to beat me half to death. And when I woke up and realized that, that the judgment wasn't falling, but there was a God with a tender heart who was drawing me back into relationship, who was calling me and beckoning me and saying, come home, son, I love you, I want to help you, I want to strengthen you, I want to heal you. When I realized that, I fell in love with him even more. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's what we understand to be the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. It doesn't mean that we'll live a perfect, holy life from the day we get saved till the day we die. We will fail. We will make mistakes. But God, our loving Heavenly Father, will deal with us and draw us back in. And then he will help us heal our wounds, even though often self-inflicted. Then it says, this is introduction, by the way. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. Sort of. Then it says, perseverance produces character. Now, character is translated from, from the Greek word that I can't pronounce, dokami. You don't know that that's the way it's pronounced or not pronounced either. So we'll go with it. D-O-K-I-M-E. It means the quality of being approved or proven from having stood the test of time. The quality of being approved or proven from having stood the test of of time. Simon Peter described it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse number 7. He said the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says that when we go through these trials and we go through these tribulations and when we realize that through the tribulation God is doing a work in us we realize after a while Okay, this isn't Christianity 101. This isn't the kindergarten stage. But he said, after a while, we realize that when we go through tribulation, that tribulation is working perseverance within us, that God is strengthening us, and that perseverance uh, gives, us, gives us character. It gives us a stamina. It gives us a strength. That character uh, gives us this idea that, that when our faith is tested, it's more precious than anything this world has to offer. The most valuable, precious metal, he said, is more valuable than gold that perishes. So when we go through testing, when we go through trials, he said it produces character in, in us, in, within us. And then he says character produces or sustains hope. Now, somebody who lives without hope is a miserable individual. I've stood in some very hopeless scenarios. I've been with people in very hopeless situations. And if, if, if there were not a God in heaven, there would be zero hope, nothing. That's what I understand about people who deny the existence of God. If you deny the existence of God, then there is absolutely no meaning to the pain that we endure. If there's no God, 
then nothing matters. If there's no God, then there's no light at the end of the tunnel. If there's no God, then there's no hope. But there is a God, so there is hope eternally in Christ Jesus. And so he said once we realize that our tribulation produces perseverance and our perseverance produces character, that character sustains the hope within us that one day God is going to right all the wrong, that one day God is going to vanquish all the evil, that one day God is going to heal all the hurt. And he said it's that hope that sustains us we look forward in hope trusting in him and so now think about this with everything we've learned in the book of Romans when we consider that we're saved by grace through faith when we consider the fact that it's 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 faith believing in Jesus Christ what he did for us the finished work of the cross when we consider the fact that we're redeemed we have a home in heaven because of what Jesus has done And then in real time, we understand that that same hope, that same faith, that same glory that awaits us is what will strengthen us in the journey down here. And we we, we begin to think through this, we begin to process, even from a doctrinal standpoint of, of salvation, those who believe you can lose it, you can lose it, you can walk away from it, you can forfeit it. Stop and think about this for just a second. Here's what Paul says in verse number five. Notice this. Now, he's, he's, he's covered the doctrinal elements of it, and now he's covered some practical elements that, you know, life does get tough and life gets messy sometimes. But now he shifts into verse number five, and he says, for when, and by the way, this is in the same context, in the same breath. He says, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me, by the way, in case you're wondering. When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now listen very carefully right here, because this is the crescendo. Simply put, here's what he's saying. If God didn't give up on you then, what makes you think he's going to give up on you now? That's the essence of what Paul just said to us. It's a dynamic statement. Because again, when we think through, process this with me. I want you to sort of run this in in binary form. I want you to think through it from a doctrinal perspective that we're saved by grace through faith. We're born again and kept by the power of God. And then I want you to think uh, through it with me through a practical application. So he says from from a doctrinal standpoint, even in your darkest hour, when your faith is rocked, when you're, when you're lying face down in the dirt, when your world has been shattered, when your life is falling apart, when you're hurting, when you're in a place of despair, and in that moment of despair and darkness, you say something foolish that you may later regret. When you question God, when you wonder if he still loves you, when you, you, you think to yourself, there can't possibly be a God. If I'm hurting this badly, God surely doesn't love me. Paul says, do you think that God is going to fail you now 
When God looked on you in your worst condition, when God saw you in your unconverted state, when God looked upon us in all the villainy and the vileness of our sinful, depraved nature, he looked on you in love and mercy and grace, and God didn't view you as a worm or an outcast. He viewed you as a broken one who needed healing, and he drew you in by his spirit, and he redeemed you by the blood of his son, and he saved you by his grace, and he invested his power in your life. He said, do you now think in your darkest hour in the depths of the valley of the shadow of death, he's going to leave you here? He said, much more being now reconciled by his blood, we shall be saved by his life. The same God that brought you out of a horrible pit when you were lost and broken is the same God that will heal your hurts and mend your wounds and bandage you up and pick you up and put you back in the saddle again. It's that God that loved you in the, in the most wretched state you've ever been in. He said, he surely isn't going to quit on you now. He's not going to give up on you now. Now you're his child. Think about this. Before we got saved, the Bible says that we were the sons and the daughters of wrath, meaning that we were a part of the world system that we'd been sucked into the vortex of, of evil and sinfulness, that we were, we were feasting on everything the world threw our way because we were looking for sustenance and help and we were looking for fulfillment. He said, even when you were in that condition, prior to knowing Christ as Savior, prior to being born again, prior to being received as the sons and the daughters of God, even then God loved you. Do you think now that you're his child and you reach a point where you wonder if God's really there, and you say something ignorant in a moment of hurt and pain and despair, do you think that God's going to give up on you now? He said, you're his child now. He's your father. He said, having been saved from wrath. Look at that. In verse number 9, he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more, having been reconciled. That's past tense. We've been reconciled. Now present tense in future hope we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. God isn't going to give up on you. If you're God's child, He's going to complete the work that he started in you. And he said this to us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, and I'll close with this. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You're going to face some stuff. People are going to fail you, I promise. If you haven't learned anything yet, learn this from me. People will fail you. The same people who, who cried Hosanna as Jesus rode into Jerusalem triumphantly stood in the crowd as they cried, crucify him and give us Barabbas. That same crowd that pats you on the back will stick a knife in the very same spot they were patting. Don't put your faith in people. Don't put your confidence in people. My confidence, my hope is in the Lord. 
He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never fail you. If everybody in this world turns their back on you, God will never turn his back. He'll never turn his back. And you're going to feel forsaken sometimes. Real talk, you're going to feel forsaken sometimes. Can you consider this with me? This is a heavy truth. Did the father ever forsake his son, the Lord Jesus? It's debatable. But we know Jesus at least felt forsaken on the cross. If the very son of God, if the very God of all glory incarnate reached a point of such despair that he felt like the father had forsaken him, don't you think there might be seasons when we feel alone? And want to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, Jesus was quoting from the book of Psalms. We know it as, a, as one of the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that was actually a quote from the book of Psalms because David felt the same way at one point in his life. I felt forsaken. Have I ever felt like God gave up on him? You may ever feel like God just didn't care? I reached such a dark place in my life one time several years ago. I thought to myself, I never denied that there was a God, but I thought, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think he cares about me. Now, I, I know what all the Bible teaches. I understand all the, all the nuances of theology and God's sovereignty and that his eyes are in every place beholding the evil and the good, but I really reached a point of darkness in my soul where I thought, God, just why would he care about my life? But I can tell you in hindsight that he's never forsaken me. And in the darkest hour of the night, he's been there. And he's given me the strength I needed to carry on. And if you're here this morning and you're hurting and you feel abandoned by God, I promise you. I promise you based on the authority of his word, he won't leave you alone. He's there with you and when you can't see him, it's because he's carrying you to the next level. You have to just continue believing that and trusting him in your time of tribulation. Let's stand together this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now in Jesus' name that you'd bless this time as we seek your presence. Father, as we respond to your voice, I pray that you would speak to us. And God, that you'd hear us when we cry, that you'd hear the need of our heart and supply it according to your riches and glory. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, my prayer is that even in this moment, they would call on you in simple faith, trusting in you as their eternal hope through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.